We need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. This is episode 121 of the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast. It's the 7th of November, 2017. With me is the Velvet Glove himself, (laughs) Scott. G'day, Trevor. How are you? I'm going well. I'm going well, Scott. I see you haven't lost your uh, bloody horn, uh, so anyway. No, it's electronic, (laughs) so I've got no chance of displacing it. (laughs) Unfortunately, I thought, I thought Jimmy might contact us about that, but he never did. But anyway, no, so. he, might, he might have taken offence to when I said that I hated him. So <laughs> <laughs> he was only joking, Jimmy. We love you. So yeah, yeah. we do love you. Yeah, Scott. Uh, various topics yes. that are a continuation in some, you know, parts two and three of things we've discussed before are sort of coming up on the agenda for. Uh, the podcast in this episode, and well, it wouldn't be a podcast lately if we didn't refer to the Constitution. Are we going to do that again? <laughs> <laughs> and let me guess, section forty-six, uh, well, forty-four. Section, yeah, well, section forty-six. Yeah, yeah. Uh, actually, it's going to be section forty-six this time. Um, so, anyway, came across this article, dear listener, which was uh, titled. New South Wales man could be owed up to $460,000 from the ousted dual citizen politicians. And uh, there's a guy from Wagga Wagga, Richard Foley, who has filed a writ of summons in court against the five disqualified politicians, including Barnaby Joyce, and he's suing them for some cold, hard cash. And the article goes on to say that he's basing his actions under what's called the Common Informers Parliamentary Disqualification Act, which is something I had never heard of until I'd read this article. So, um, so dear listener, if you are pissed with our politicians who have, you know, Sat in the chamber. Ripped us off. When, yeah. when apparently disqualified, um, this guy from Wagga Wagga is showing what to do. So he's suing. Um, in my research subsequently, and you're thinking to yourself, well, how can he sue? How could you sue somebody? What's, what, what grounds have you got here? And what we've got is Section 46 of the Constitution says, until the Parliament otherwise provides... Any person declared by this constitution to be incapable of sitting as a senator or as a member of the House of Representatives shall, for every day on which he so sits, be liable to pay the sum of £100 to any person who sues for it in any court of competent jurisdiction. So for every day, £100 is, is what Section 46 is saying of the constitution. I mean, I passed constitutional law at, at uni, Scott, but I don't remember that one. But it's it's amazing what works in our, you know, in our constitution. So it's two hundred bucks a day, yeah. Well, that that's what the constitution says. He's not relying on that because um, 
Section 46 only applied until the Parliament provides otherwise. And there previously was a case against a James Webster whose eligibility was questioned and the politicians no doubt looked at the constitution at that time and thought, holy smokes, we could be up for cold hard cash here if we don't change this. And so they passed an act called the Common Informers Parliamentary Disqualification Act, which replaced Section 46. Bearing in mind Section 46 said it applied only until Parliament decides otherwise. So, um, so they passed this act, and under this act... Um, Politicians can effectively be sued $200 um, uh, for every day subsequent to the day that they're served with papers. So this guy has served them with um, papers and he's potentially able to claim $200 every day from each of them um, by the time the matter's heard. So... On the face of it, he's got a reasonable case. Scott. Jeez, you'd have to hope that the court rules against him, though, wouldn't you? Otherwise, we'd all be lining up for four hundred and sixty grand. Ah, well, here's the kicker. At the very end, yeah. this, at the very end of this section, it says, "The High Court shall refuse to make an order in a suit under this Act that would, in the opinion of the court, cause the person." against whom it was made to be penalised more than once in respect of any period or day of sitting as a senator or as a member. So we can't all line up and sue. They can only be sued once. So, um, I don't know, you might be able to join his action as a plaintiff, Scott, and cash in, and you'd have to split the money. So that's potentially what might happen. But anyway... This guy, at least, has got a good claim on a decent payout by the time he gets well, there. Yeah, I mean, it's, he's certainly he's certainly putting he's putting his money where his mouth is. I mean, like we all sat around and bitched about it and stuff, but this guy's actually going up against him. Yeah. So you know, yeah, my hat's off to him for that. But um, the practical side of me kicking at that point and says, well, there's twenty million of us, or there's twenty four million of us, and a couple of hundred of them. You know, you don't want to sue. You don't want twenty-four million people lining up to sue them all for four hundred and sixty grand. Yeah. Otherwise, we'd all be we'd all be we'd all be buggered if yeah. we did that. But, um, but as I said, that can't happen because that would be effectively yeah. being penalised more than once. So it can, mm. can be penalised once, though. So that will be interesting to see where that ends up. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, mm. Mm. Uh, came across. What was actually, I think it was a letter in the age or something like that. I've got a link to it from a Monica Ducks, and she talks about um, her daughter's um, uh, school experience. And, um, well, just quoting this Monica Ducks, she says, A few years ago I attended a party where a woman was boasting about the spectacular fireworks display her daughter's private school held as part of their school fate. I listened to her story, getting more and more annoyed before finally interrupting to point out that my son's state school was so overcrowded they'd been using the library as a classroom. When I finished my outburst, she looked at me oddly and then continued with her fireworks rave, unabashed, as if, it hadn't, as if I hadn't spoken. Uh, and she goes on in this article to say, um, and this is the bit that I really want to take from it, is that... Um, 
you know, we've got an attitude in this country where uh, our sort of private school system is perfectly normal and perfectly acceptable and nobody's, nobody's getting up and challenging it, not well, even the Labor I, Party. I took from that no one is embarrassed yes. by how much money the school has got to, well, you know, there, there's, um, so what if my daughter's school has money to burn or at least to blow up? Yes. Um, you know, and that is very true, that, you know, you've got to the point that um, a school having a fireworks display, for God's sake. Yes. You know, it's that's not, ridiculous. It's not seen as uh, excessive. And some of these schools with their, you know, rifle ranges and mm. multiple Olympic swimming pools. Yeah. Um, what uh, the, the line I got from this, which I quite liked, was that on a recent Facebook thread, somebody compared the debate about school funding in Australia to the gun control controversy in America. Um, both countries suffer a kind of myopia on these respective issues. State-funded inequality in education is so entrenched that unravelling the system seems an impossible task, just like gun control in the United States. I think they're right. I think that's spot on. I think our private school system is, is our version of the American gun control fiasco. Oh, I think it probably is, but I think you've got to, um, you'd have to take it apart in the same way. You'd have to attack it very slightly and that sort of stuff and pull it apart school by school. And I think it could be broken down. It would take a hell of a lot of courage to do it, but... That's a key, just, that's a key ingredient yeah, that's missing yeah, at the moment. I, I know that, but you've just... Well, I mean, yeah. what really gives me the irrits about the Labor opposition is that you've got um, Tanya Plibersek up there, whom I used to have a hell of a lot of respect for, mm. Yeah, she's just up there saying nonsense like, oh, we don't care what the budget position is, we're going to restore funding to Catholic schools. Wrong, Miss Plebisek, wrong. Mm. You should not be doing that. It's absolutely wrong that you would take it apart and go ahead and do that. Anyway, um, where was I headed with that? Yeah, you, you've, got those, you've got those things from the opposition who are showing no courage whatsoever. You've got the courage in this debate coming from the government side where the government has stood up and said, this is wrong, we've got to do something about this, and they've only taken very timid steps, but they have taken steps in the right direction. And Simon Birmingham, for heaven's sake, he should be given a knighthood for what he's done. He really should be, but instead he's being pilloried and that sort of stuff. So, you know, I've got no... I, I, you know... Uh, yeah, anyway, we will have this conversation later as the next federal poll is called, but um, I don't know who to vote for next time. <laughs> it's a tough one. It's, it is, yeah. It's tough. Mm. Uh, we at different times have mentioned um, Greg Sheridan, a foreign affairs editor for The Australian, and the 12th man at different times has been a bit of a fan of his because... Um, well, this is the problem with with the guys like Greg Sheridan and the right wing religious groups is that we tend to agree with them when it comes to Islam and when it comes to Section eighteen C, and they can speak quite eloquently on these things. But then on other things, they're completely nuts. And 
<laughs> there was an article in the Weekend Australian, which was October 28th, and it goes on for pages and pages and pages. It did go on for an awful long time, didn't it? Of, of Greg Sheridan saying that, um, well, here's the crux of it is in the first paragraph. It is more rational to believe in God than to believe there is no God. In fact, belief in God is much more rational than atheism. The resting place of the mind, its natural equilibrium, as it were, is belief. He says... Next paragraph. This is, in truth, a statement of the obvious, but it seems radical shocking. This is because in Australia and in Europe, many of our leading figures, certainly the loudest of them, and a substantial and growing minority of the population believe, or at least pretend to believe, in the religious faith of atheism, the faith that holds there is no God. He goes on and on... uh, he quotes the Institute of Public Affairs, which is always a problem. <laughs> he then misrepresents what the idea of faith is and, and sort of, you know, what's really a, an educated guess to him is, becomes a matter of faith. And it's just incredible that a mainstream rag um, would just dedicate pages and pages of his rantings about how good God is and how bad atheism is in a mainstream paper. That is the thing that I found really ridiculous, was that you've got Sheridan, who's got a very good name as a foreign correspondent and that sort of stuff. Well, he's, well, he's got a good name, but he's he's a numbskull on that as well. Like, well, I suppose so, but, you know, he's got a very good name for it and that sort of stuff. But he turned around... And he devoted pages and pages to his diatribe mm. of nonsense. It was really, you know, it's crazy. It's the reason why you could never subscribe to any news call, um paper and because that's the sort of stuff that you're supporting. It's, it's just an unbelievable article. But anyway... You know, I mean, just I love this bit. You know, Christopher Hitchens. Hitchens was in some ways a splendid journalist, brave and witty and engaged, but he was a poor philosopher, a tremendously tenacious historian and an astonishingly ill-informed theologian. You know, Hitchens was an incredible intellect and it's a pity for the humankind that he died when he did, you know. Mm. You know, it's just an example of where... Um, we really have our own version of Fox News here in Australia, and oh yeah, it is the Australian and the Murdoch <laughs> Press. Yeah. yeah, it is. You know, it's um, yeah, it really is ridiculous to hear, mm. yeah, to to see that and that sort of thing. You think to yourself, mm. bloody hell, you know. Mm. Mm. Hey Scott, um, marriage equality. Did you come yeah. across, across this one from about Twitter and the and the survey uh, results? Deep Throat sent it to us. I had read it, though, before he sent it to us. And it is um, it is somewhat distressing, isn't it? Because it's predicting the possibility that the yes side will lose. Yes. Um, they've used advanced data analytics developed at Griffith University Big Data and Smart Analytics Lab, which has proven uncannily accurate in predicting outcomes of hard-to-call polls. Despite the strong polling to the contrary, our method predicted the outcome of the U.S. presidential election. Mm. Um, I don't know. I mean, I I understood what they were saying. I went through and that sort of stuff, and I understood where they were coming from and that type of thing. 
but, listener, it's, it's based on tweets. It is. So they've examined data from, um, from Australian tweets. Yeah. And, and what they've said is that if you look at the tweets on the face of it, then 72% are in favour of marriage equality. But a lot of tweets are reproduced by um, a small number of people. So if you reduce it down to the number of unique users, then support for the yes vote comes down to 57%. Mm. Then they say that if you look at the demographics, um, Twitter is um, biased towards young people. So based on statistics of belief amongst the more elderly, and they're obviously tending towards more of a no vote, then when you take that into account, the yes position comes down to 49% based on Twitter activity. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's... Um, we should make a prediction, Scott. What, what, you know, what is your prediction for the postal survey? Well, I think it'll still be won by the yes case, and I wouldn't be surprised if it was 65 70% even. But after reading this, it does make me think that I might have, I might have too much faith in the old polling system, mm. because those polls have consistently paid a have consistently argued that the uh, support in favour of it is sixty sixty five percent. Yeah, and I find that really hard to walk away from, you know, because the polling has been consistent and it's been consistent right up to the latest polling that they've done. Yeah, but then the polls were consistent in relation to Brexit and in relation to Trump and then when the big day came, then people uh, uh, for theoretically sure, had but kept we... quiet about what was perhaps an unpopular view um, when they had their chance to vote, you know, came out with that unpopular view. in the. Yeah, and that, that's very true, that that could happen here for sure. Mm. But, you know, if you look at the... The take-up rate of the vote has been seventy-five percent. I think we're at now, aren't we? Mm. That is more than those. That is more than the U.S. presidential election. It is more than the Brexit mm. referendum. So, True. you know, I think. Um, I think we'll run a poll. I, I don't know. On I, the Facebook page, and we'll get uh, listeners to chip in with their <laughs> best guess. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll do that. We'll, we'll run a poll on the Facebook page, people. What's your best guess? Yeah. You know, will it be one? If so, what by what percentage? Yeah. yeah, we did that on the um, the census no religion question, and you and I were pretty miserable in our guess. We were <laughs> way too optimistic. So I've I've learnt from that to be a bit more pessimistic. I'm going in for a lower well, figure this so, time. We certainly were optimistic, weren't we? Anyway, mm. so, so that's an interesting one. Um, you know, it's our media is just so divided. Uh, you know, we've got Greg Sheridan, you know, in the Australian, and we've got News Corp, you know, runs such a hard-line conservative view. And then you've got The Guardian and, I guess, the ABC with their just left-wing views. It's hard to find something in the middle, isn't it? And Oh, Fairfax is probably as close as you get, but even that's a little bit left. Yeah. yeah. So here's an article from The Guardian the threat to freedom narrative is just a bid for power and privilege, Rodney Groom. And he's saying that, um, uh, as we've been saying, if Australians vote yes, coalition conservatives will attempt to load down marriage equality legislation with lots of exemptions. And he makes the point that um, this freedom narrative is really a bid for power and privilege. 
and that the original idea of religious freedom meant not discriminating against people because of their religion and it's now been distorted into something that allows people to discriminate against people. So it's completely the opposite of its original meaning. But there's no way you would see this article in a Murdoch News Corp paper. No, of course not. It it wouldn't turn up in a Murdoch paper at all. Yeah, Yeah. in the Greg Sheridan one, there's no way you'd ever see that in The Guardian. (laughs) Our media is so divided. Yeah, Mm. Uh, Hard to find a middle ground. Mm. Uh, I think it was very interesting to read it, though, and that sort of stuff. And Rodney Coombe is a long-time advocate for marriage equality, for sure. Right. And I think that um, – I, I think he he has expressed far better than you and I have, but we have also expressed the view that um, the religious freedom argument will be peddled as, as a way of – excuse me – as a way of the religious side trying to control the outcome and they've already they've already run off now. They've they've already written off the um, plebiscite. They've already gone into their bunker to um, talk about what amendments have to be put through to the Dean Smith bill. Mm. So anyway, we will have to see what comes of that. But I would hope that Turnbull has the guts that when the um, when the ballot is returned, if it's a yes vote sort of stuff, he turns around and says, "Well, we've got a bill. It's Dean Smith. So that's the one we're going ahead with." Mm. You know, if you don't like it, don't vote for it. You know, mm. because. It will pass, you know, um, and that will be the end of it. So hmm. we shall see. We shall see. Exactly. Hmm. Scott, a really, really interesting article from Quadrant magazine by Toby Young titled The Fall of the Meritocracy. And, dear listener, I consider this to be one of the more thought-provoking articles we've come across in the last 121 episodes of this podcast. Um, and what it's dealing with <laughs> is, you know, we rail against embedded sort of privilege on this podcast. So, you know, so the, the aristocracy that, that people would, would um, gain power and privilege by virtue of birth is just rubs against the grain for us, Scott. True? You know, and hence, you know, why we'd be against mm, the Republic, yeah. why we're in favour of the Republic, for example, because the thought of of power being sort of a hereditary thing mm. is just grates against what we see as being fair. And I think there'd be many people like us whose view of the world would be that a meritocracy <clears throat> is a good thing, where if people... Uh, work hard and study hard and achieve things in life and earn rewards as a result, then that's a fair system and that's how the world should run. <laughs> Who would disagree with the idea, Scott? But Well, I don't know. Well, yeah, but people do, yeah. Well, Toby Young, in this article, gives food for thought as to why you might disagree with that thinking and or at least if you don't disagree with it be less comfortable with it or acknowledge that it's got some deep flaws in it so sit back dear dear listener and and prepare to examine why perhaps a meritocracy uh favored by many is perhaps not 
as great a thing as we think it is and perhaps not as fair as we think it is, but ultimately perhaps the only thing that we can do anyway. So uh, <laughs> it goes on a bit, but this is worth it. Um, so this is an article by a t- guy called Toby Young and he kicks off by referring to a book published by his father, Michael Young, called The Rise of Meritocracy. Uh, and um, it purported to be a paper written by a sociologist uh, in the future, in 2034, about a, uh, a sort of a dystopian future where meritocracy had been taken to its extreme ends over time. And um, uh, it, it begins with the introduction of open examinations for entry into the civil service in Britain and continues to discuss real events until the late 1950s, at which time it veers off into fantasy. Um, it's a bit like George Orwell's 1984, a dystopian satire that identifies aspects of the contemporary world and describes a future they might lead to if left unchallenged. And at the time, it was quite popular. It was read by the author's colleagues in the Labor Party. Uh, Anthony Crosland was the Labor Education Secretary. After reading the book, he declared, if it's the last thing I do, I'm going to destroy every fucking, fucking grammar school in England and Wales and Northern Ireland. But unfortunately... Um, According to this author, there's 164 grammar schools in England and 68 in Northern Ireland and none in Wales, so he didn't achieve his purpose. But anyway, says here, meritocracy has come to be seen as something good rather than bad, and in that paper by his father, it's described as bad. Um, and what he says is that we talk about now the the absence of opportunities for socio-economic advancement is seen as a big problem facing the West. So a lack of ability of people to move from the lower to the middle to the upper class we see as a problem. And he concludes that um, meritocracy is what he's in favour of but basically because it's the only thing that could possibly work because the sort of communist ideal just leads to um, terrible outcomes. If you're going to try and force equality on a population, then you're talking censorship and throwing people in jail and and all sorts of nasty consequences that you just can never achieve. So practically it's impossible to have a fully equal society, you're going to have to allow a meritocracy because the other systems don't work. But anyway, um, so he, he, he says at the very beginning, OK, I'm, I'm in favour of a meritocracy, but there's a couple of problems here. Um, uh, it appears to be fair to allocate success in life based on meritocracy, but is it really all that fair? And um, what he says is that lots of studies are showing that um, cognitive ability and characteristics that lead to success are between 
40% and 80% um, inherited. Various studies are showing it's pretty overwhelming. So the things that make you successful, a large proportion are things that you've inherited, which, of course, is luck. You don't get to choose your parents. Um, So different writers would argue that a society in which allocates um, according to merit is, is no, is no fairer than, you know, the sort of aristocracy that handed down, um, dukedoms and knighthoods to people, um, based on, on hereditary factors. They're sort of the same thing. They're both hereditary. So Mm. it's, it's a good point. Um, what he also said is um, that uh, the problem that we've got with a meritocracy is it's actually not going to produce a situation of, of strong and vibrant movement of people through the different class structures. So you like to think that the, the, the poor and lower classes will move up into the middle and higher classes based on merit, and people in the successful classes will possibly fall backwards down through to the lower classes, also based on lack of merit. But that's not what's actually hap- happening. And the reason is that... Um, uh, that there isn't the intergenerational movement that you'd expect. And the reason is because the children of the uh, meritocratic elite in all likelihood inherit the natural gifts enjoyed by their parents. So, um, so what we've got is we had a period where in the early days leading up to the 1950s, um, basically people... Really smart people, uh, you you didn't necessarily achieve success and power through your intellect because of the nature of work that we had at the time. But these days, because of computers and the jobs that we have, a strong IQ and intellect is actually far more valuable than it was uh, in the early part of the 20th century. So that quality of being smart leads more likely to success. And also what they say in this article is that successful or smart people, you know, prior to the 1950s, people didn't move around as much. There wasn't the communication. It was more difficult for smart people to meet other smart people. And human nature is such that smart people... People want to marry people like themselves. So smart people will want to marry smart people. And in the olden days, the opportunities to meet other smart people outside your village weren't that particularly, you know, apparent. But now it's easy. So what we've got, people are being selected into universities based on their intelligence and from the universities, they're ending up in high-powered jobs based on their intelligence. Females have entered both of those spheres, and so people are meeting in those circumstances. Smart, 
smart boys are meeting smart girls, mm. getting hitched up like they never have in the history of the world. And, and producing smart offspring. Producing smart offspring. And there is a, a slight regression to the mean, but they've certainly got more chance of producing smart offspring than, than would otherwise be the case. So we're actually filtering smart people into certain areas and getting them to mix together and we're getting this highly charged um, sort of pool of, of a particular characteristic of people and, and they're going to pass on their IQ and other characteristics of success and whammo, you've got a hereditary system, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> that's perhaps even more um, hereditary than the old aristocracy. Yeah, and that is a, it's a, a thing I saw in a movie, Gattaca, which maybe not a lot of people saw, but I remembered it well because it really struck a chord with me. I thought to myself, <clears throat> the premise of the movie was that you the interview and that sort of stuff was all conducted via a genetic test. Okay. You gave a sample of blood when you went in for your interview and, you know, 12 seconds later after it was put through a machine, the guy gave you the answer. He said, oh, welcome aboard. And he says, well, what about the interview? And he says, oh, that was it. And, and um, <laughs> you know. Yes. Yep. So, and what really struck me was I said, I said, to, uh, I said to my partner at the time, I said, what really strikes me about this movie on full circle that it used to matter who your dad was mm -hmm. to determine where you went in life. Mm -hmm. Now it's going to matter again who your dad is to determine where you go in life. Exactly you know, right. exactly. And right. that is the, that is the thing that really struck me. I thought to myself, bloody hell. Now this was all based around, um, Babies that had been genetically altered and that sort of stuff when they're in the womb and that type of thing. Mm. So that was really um, – I should have used the horn then. Um, but, um, yeah, the, they should have – they weren't born that way. They were manufactured, I suppose. This article yeah. does make a reference to that at some point as well, that that will be a choice down the track, that people will be able to, you know, select different genes – so that their children will have higher IQs and successful characteristics. But yeah. Do you listen to it? It really is frightening when you look at it and mm. you think about it, yeah. If you're doubting the correlation between um, IQ and, and socioeconomic status, this article has got some really interesting statistics here. So um, referring to different studies... Uh, IQ is a better predictor of low socioeconomic status than any competing variable, including parental socioeconomic status. According to their analysis, somebody with an IQ of 130 has a less than 2% chance of living in poverty, whereas someone with an IQ of 70 has a 26% chance. Um, uh, also, a study in Britain in 1972 sampled 10,000 men. Um, the fact that there's a strong correlation between the socio-economic status of fathers and sons within this cohort doesn't mean Britain is, un, um, is not a meritocracy, according to this 
research. He shows that if you factor in the men's IQ, the level of mobility is exactly what you'd expect in a perfectly um, um, meritocratic society. Um, Further on in America, IQs above 120 typically earn twice as much as those with average IQs. Uh, A random person with above-average intelligence has two-thirds chance of earning an above-average income, while a random person of below-average intelligence has only a one-third chance. So there's really strong links between IQ and socioeconomic status. And then just on the idea of um, this being a hereditary thing... um, uh, um, let's move past that section. Uh, yeah, as we said, the parents of upper middle class now produce a disproportionate number of the smartest children. Um, uh, yeah, up until the 1950s, the impact of a sort of mating on the stratification of society was kept in check by limited opportunities, but universities and high-powering jobs have now brought those people together. So so in summary, dear listener, uh, a meritocracy basically, you know, awarding, rewarding people um, for their achievement is perhaps not necessarily as fair as we think it is because somebody's ability or propensity to achieve is largely determined by a lot of the genes in them and that's a matter of luck and there's a high correlation between IQ and socioeconomic status and we've actually constructed a world now because of our communication, our universities, where this elite group is now being bred like some sort of special breeding farm experiment we've got going on in this planet, Scott. It's a really interesting thought, I reckon. It is really interesting, isn't it? Mm. It's, um, in a way, it's frightening too because you, um, you know, you go back to Gattaca, which I mentioned, mm. it was, um, it never used, it, it used to matter who, you, who your dad was. Mm-hmm. Then we went round to a point where it didn't matter who your dad is. Now it's coming back to matter who your dad is again. Yeah. You know, it's really... Well, perhaps it always did. and Yeah, I suppose, but I mean... Uh, was saying I, that, you know, you, you thought, oh, why is this person down the bottom? But in fact, um, yeah, well, maybe during a period of... Um, <clears throat> uh, yeah, when people had less chance to move around. But yeah, now... Um, you know, the sort of inequalities in the system may actually represent uh, somewhat of a perfect meritocracy that we've developed, that we've developed already. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Um, uh, article from the Saturday paper on assisted dying, and this one was um, looking at some of the players and what they've said, and... Um, uh, I mentioned this line when we were doing our review after our excursion, and it's from Andrew Denton referring to um, to um, Kevin Rudd and Paul Keating. So both Kevin Rudd and Paul Keating came out against assisted dying legislation, and Andrew Denton said, to listen to Rudd or Keating, you'd think that this law invented death, 
The truth is, euthanasia is already happening illegally and in the shadows, and desperate people are killing themselves in horrific ways, ways that have dreadful ripple effects for the first responders and family. Keating once told Hewson that he'd do him slowly. Now his faith instructs that God will do you slowly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And he says here, I don't buy that Keating's opposition isn't faith-based. Scratch the surface and almost all opposition comes back to faith. Yeah. Sorry, Scott. No, I was just going to say, this this is the thing that really annoys me about opponents of assisted dying, is that you'd swear listening to them that, this in this is invents death. Mm. That death is something that is not going to happen to each and every one of us at some stage. It's the only thing we've all got in common. You know, whether you, whether you're whether you're the king or a little street seeper, sooner or later you're going to dance with the reaper. You know, it's as simple as that. And you know, he's right. Um, to listen to Rudolph Keating, you'd you'd think that this law invented death. It isn't invented death. It has just simply made it available to those people that are suffering and in turn and in a turn condition. So it's no big deal at all. You know, it really should happen. And hopefully after the state election we'll have some we'll have a government with a spine up here that'll do the same up here. Anyway, we shall see. I wouldn't hold my breath. Yeah. Well, I'm not going to hold my breath, but still in all, it's it might happen. Yeah. Mm. Dear listener, not too long ago, you looked at your podcast app and saw that a new episode of the Iron Fist and Velvet Glove podcast was available to download. Did you silently think to yourself, wait, a new podcast? I like listening to those guys. If so, then you qualify as a potential donor to the podcast. Your donation will help cover some expenses... But more importantly, your donation tells the boys that they are on the right track and to keep up the good work. A dollar a show is all they ask. Go to their website at ironfistvelvetglove.com.au and click on the donations link. Scott, do you ever listen to Late Night Live, Philip Adams? Um, I did listen to him quite a lot uh, a little while ago, but I've yeah fallen off the wagon. Yeah. Yeah, so. I, really, I, I normally really like Philip Adams and his stuff and... But I was listening the other night and he was talking to this reporter and they were discussing Czech, uh, the Czech Republic. And I'm just yeah. uh, uh, Did you get a chance to listen to this? Because I'm going to play it now, Scott, but I'm just curious. Did no, you get I didn't a hear it. No. Okay, all right. No, I didn't hear it. Sit back yeah. and listen to this little excerpt from Late Night Live. We've got to move on to uh, people like Dutate and Mugabe shortly, but uh, I'm wondering why the immigrant issue resonated in the Czech Republic because, as you point out, there's not a significant immigration problem. It's it's very interesting how fear of Islam and fear of Muslims and, and migrants in particular really percolates through the politics of this country. There are, I, I was I've been writing about this issue over the over this year. Uh, there's barely at best maybe twenty thousand Muslims in this entire country, and this is a country of almost eleven million people. But the way, especially since the migrant crisis kicked off in twenty fifteen, the way that Islam as a whole has been presented in Czech media has been almost uniformly negative. There, there really is this impression among a lot of Czech voters, left, right, however they might want to identify themselves. There really is this fear that any significant or insignificant, any influx of anybody who, who's Muslim or a migrant in this country is all of a sudden 
going to lead to Paris-like terror attacks. And obviously that's not the case. And it's, it, it's something that, it, it's something that I think has, has deep roots, but it's something at the same time in the last few years that's been whipped up by a media that presents this, this picture of Islam as just this frightening monolith, whereas anybody like in, in Australia or in Canada can tell you, of course, there are extremists here and there, but on the whole... Oh, we've got our share, more than our fair yeah. share, Michael. God, that was frustrating to listen to. <laughs> so people in the Czech Republic are worried about, you know, the influx of Islam into into the Czech Republic and... They're told, well, what are you worried about? There's only 20,000 Muslims here. Well, why are you worried? Well, the answer is they've looked around some other countries and thought it's, it's not a good result quite often. <laughs> I, I think, you know, if you look at um, Brussels, if you look at Belgium, mm. where you've got uh, 5% of the population being Muslim, I think you've probably got something to worry about once you end up with a population of five or ten percent, um, because you've got a situation where they tend to agitate for change and that type of thing. So you do have a you do have a problem if it gets to that sort of number. Um, well, well, even less though. Like at one point, that reporter said, you know, oh, these people think that if there's an influx of Muslims, it's going to lead to. Paris-like attacks, and obviously that's not the case. <laughs> It'd be very surprising if it wasn't the case. At some well, point, yeah, you... exactly. You know, you've got oh, you know, you can call me a bigot if you're for saying it, if you like. But um, when you do have a large number of Muslims arriving in a country, they do seem to attract the wackos that go with it. And well, well, the European Muslim immigration experience will be that, that you know, in any large group of Muslims from the countries that they are coming from and entering Europe that we've seen, you know, there's going to be a large number of the killing is okay type of Muslim, Scott, that you don't want to categorise, <laughs> but we need to. <laughs> So, you know, if a million people come in, how many of the killing is okay Muslims will come in? It is something to worry about. If you, mm. And um, just the blase, you know, what's wrong with the Czechs? Why don't they let more in? Because clearly there's just no problem. I just thought that's so disingenuous and just so lacking of respect to the reality of the situation. And the thing is, Scott, the, um, the Czech Republic, like... Formerly, we had Czechoslovakia, and yeah. they had what was called the Velvet Revolution when the Czechoslovakia managed to extricate itself from the Soviet Empire. And it, it happened relatively peacefully um, with just street demonstrations and and without any of the violence that might have occurred in other places. So, mm. so they had a very peaceful way of uh, or experience of getting out from underneath Soviet rule. And then, having done that, they then had what they called the Velvet Divorce because the Czechs and the Slovaks um, decided that they were just culturally different people and they had remained so um, over the years and that it was just best for their respective societies if they just split the country up into 
the Czech Republic and Slovakia. Slovakia, yeah. And they did. By just peaceful agreement, decided in a velvet divorce that that's what we're going to do. So this is a place that has experienced what can happen when there is a lack of assimilation between two cultural groups. And they're looking at the European experience with uh, Muslims and going, based on our experience, we don't want to go through that again. I think it was a perfectly legitimate sort of way of looking at things and just to be scoffed at by Philip Adams and that reporter. Very frustrating. So there we go. Got my two cents worth in. Well, you know, it was a little frustrating considering Philip Adams is a um, ambassador, is it? What, you're calling him for the National Secular Lobby? Uh, yes, he is. Yes. I guess, yeah. I guess the National Secular Lobby doesn't have a policy on uh, Muslim integ- immigration. So, mm. yeah. Um, but, yeah. There we go, Scott. Hey, we've got a new patron. Brett has signed up as a patron. Good on you, Brett. And uh, at the same time, he did an entry onto the secular index of his local member, Michelle Laundrie, LMP member for Capricornia, and wasn't able to find a lot on her. Uh, seems that she is against the burqa, but that might... <sighs> My reading of it is might be just a sort of a xenophobia rather than secular reasons. So we're putting it down as a five and religion unknown, but that's it for Michelle Landry at this stage. But um, good on you, Brett. Welcome aboard. Thanks for helping out. And while we're at it, a quick thank you to Sean, Alex, Wayno, Jason, Grant, John, T, Craig, Janelle, Al... John A and Ken, thank you guys for helping out. Yes, uh, thank you very much. Yeah. yeah. Um, Tony Abbott's been in the news. He's saying <laughs> the gift that keeps on giving, Scott. He is the gift that keeps on giving, isn't he? He's saying that the same-sex marriage debate sparks a new wave of conservative activism. Um, Tony Abbott has looked at the same anti-same-sex marriage people and he has seen in them the makings of a conservative uh, force mm. in that the he could have the conservatives, well, he's, he's saying potentially 40% of the population being represented by this new group. Mm. Um, you know, he's also saying they could become a counter the pro-Labor leftist get-up movement. Um I don't know whether or not he's he's right or anything like that. I, I doubt that. Well, they could do, but I don't think they're going to stick together. You know, I mean, some of them will go off and join the Conservatives, others will join the Liberal Party and that sort of thing. Well, um, you know, once this marriage equality debate's over and done, you know, they've all been together, they've had a good time, you know. Perhaps, you know, boys have met girls and and through hereditary methods are now producing, you know, <laughs> even more nutters <laughs> amongst their children. Uh, I think they'll turn around and they go, well, what else can we talk about? Oh, abortion. Let's start picketing abortion clinics, uh, you know, uh, religious instruction in schools. Like, I think, you know, it has gathered a few of these people together and uh, if eventually the marriage equality debate is done and dusted... Uh, you know, Tony Abbott says, such robust characters, once activated, are unlikely to fade away. Uh, 
um, and could make yeah, that's, their presence felt. That is true. Mm. That is true. But I do think you have to sort of wonder about the um, age of these robust characters he's talking about. You know, yeah, well, you know, they're not all going to be young. Yeah. No, but you know, when we went on that excursion, plenty of young. people Well, that's in true. That yes, yeah, there were there were plenty of young people in that crowd. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So I think there's enough of them. Anyway, so that's Tony Abbott saying that a new movement is being born out of the. Uh, going to rise like a phoenix out of the ashes of the marriage <laughs> equality debate if they lose and it's just going to terrorise us. Uh, well, I think they've already lost. It's just a matter of how badly they'll lose. Mm. See, Tony Abbott's already put a number on it. He said that if he gets voting no, then that's 40% of the population that's given him a moral victory for traditional marriage. Mm. So, you know, he's already put a figure on it and that sort of stuff, which means... In my mind, he's already expecting that there'll be 40% no and 60% yes. Mm. Um, you know, now that what really worries me is that if he convinces enough of his colleagues to think that there's a 40% people out there that are in favour of traditional marriage, then maybe they will, maybe they'll be convinced to support the religious freedom others within the coalition mm. and then we'll end up with a... Then we'll end up with a marriage equality bill which strips us of all our equality except we'll get to get married if we want to, which Look, I, I think, think would be a disaster. You know, I think it's it's gathered these people together. They're now on email lists from the ACL and they'll be, you know, reined in and used on all sorts of campaigns in future. I think he's I think he's onto something there, Tony Abbott, unfortunately. But anyway, time will tell. Oh, yeah. Time will tell, but, I mean, surely he, if he's going to lead something like that, he'd be better off doing that from outside of Parliament, wouldn't he? Well, whether he leads it or, <laughs> you know, yes. Well, he yeah. he's, mm. no, he's going to stay in Parliament. Why would he do anything else? He's, he's, he'd be just um, – he loves it there. So he's not – Well, he might love it there and that sort of stuff. He's, yeah. people, he's people and he's electric, don't but anyway, yeah. we shall find out whether – yeah. We'll find out whether or not Turnbull actually backs him this time because uh, last time Abbott was looking like losing and that sort of stuff, so Turnbull went in to personally vouch for him and that type of thing right? and uh, ended up getting the bastard over the line. So, oh, Okay, okay. We shall see. Scott, have you ever been yeah. to Uluru? No, I never have. Right. And... It's an area I've got to go and have a look at at some stage, but I can't climb the rock anymore. No. Article, dear listener. Um, climbing Uluru is set to be a thing of the past after the Uluru Kata Tejuta National Park Board decided unanimously to ban the activity starting in 2019. There you go, Scott. If, you, if you're really keen, get there quick. Um, <laughs> The board, made up of eight traditional owners and three representatives from national parks, made the decision after consulting with the wider Anangu community, who said it was overwhelmingly in support of banning climbing the rock. Uh, said a deep cultural significance and was not a theme park. Um, quote from... Senior traditional owner and chairman of the park board, Sammy Wilsons. This is a quote from him. Some people in tourism and government, for example, might have been saying we need to keep it open, but it's not their law that lies in this land, he said. 
Oh. It's not their law that lies in this land. Okay. Mm. Um, <laughs> whose law is it that lies in this land? You know, that's the thing that I find ridiculous about this, where they say it's not it's not your law that makes this spot and all that sort of nonsense. It's absolute garbage to think that you can have two legal systems in the same country. It doesn't work. Right. You know, they've got to accept that they are a conquered people. A horrible thing was done to them 200-odd years ago. But they've got to get over it. Yeah. You know? well, well, their ans- well, some of their ancestors. <laughs> yes, you know, bad things were done to some of their ancestors by yes, for sure by some of their ancestors. So bad things were done by yeah. some of their white ancestors to some of their black ancestors. Um, exactly. Yeah. And it's just not going to work. It's like the whole Black Lives Matter thing in in the states. If you are con- if you're trying to accentuate your differences and seek special privileges based on race, then you are perpetuating racial problems. In the mm. long run, it's not a healthy situation. No, and it's not. It means for the rest, you know, it's not healthy for them, and it means for the rest of us, we have a system that says that there are laws that apply for certain people based on the colour of their skin, on their race, on their genetic makeup, that don't apply to others. And, uh, you know, it's, it's not a good idea. I mean, you know, if they banned climbing the rock because it's just too dangerous, I could accept that because it's a dangerous climb, Scott. I did it when I was like it is, it is a it, yeah. it is a really dangerous climb for sure. Yeah. And I could understand if they did ban it for that, but they haven't banned it for that. No, they've done it for... They've banned it for cultural reasons. because it's a sacred area. And where the climb begins is also sacred men's area. You know, that's the reasons. And these are just not good reasons. It's just not not good at all. Oh, Scott, just looking at uh, one of the things on Facebook, um, uh, just some of the comments people make. Um, One guy says, um, for a long time now, they have preferred that you didn't climb it. After all, it is sacred. And this other guy replies, it's a rock. It's been there for 300 million years. It will still be there (laughs) millions of years after humans are extinct. Um, uh, they talk about a lot. just the number of people <laughs> like who are prepared that. to say it's sacred, therefore don't climb it, is a worrying trend, and that there's something. Yeah, and, and that is that is probably people that feel that they have to agree with it. Yes, you know that they have to make out that it's a bad thing if you touch it and that sort of thing. Not, but had you said to these same people? It's a sacred thing for the Catholic Church that other people are not allowed to get married, and that it's a sacred thing for a gay ba- gay bakery not to serve, um, you know, gay people a wedding cake. They'd probably poo-poo sacredness mm-hmm. of the Catholic Church in that situation. Exactly, they really would. Yeah, I, I suspect. So, if you're going to, you know, if you're going to respect sacredness then you've got to, you know, 
respected in all of its forms. This is the danger of this sort of thing. You have to be able to apply it across the board into all sorts of areas, and um, uh, it's a worrying trend. Mm. It is, yeah. Part of it, part of it, Scott, as to why people are perhaps willing to accept the sacredness of the Aboriginal cause more than they are of the Catholic cause would be something to do with victimhood, I reckon. And there's been a bit of talk in the States especially about the sort of sexual harassment claims as a result of Harvey Weinstein, was that his name? Mm -hmm. Uh, Harvey Weinstein, yeah. yeah. Uh, Any initial thoughts on, on what's going on there? Um, only that I, I found it really hard to understand. This is the Me Too, is it? Yes. The hashtag, hashtag me, too. me Too. Yeah, I, I found that oh, distasteful that would mm. say that you're a victim. In when um, some circumstances seemed, you know, a long, long way from rape and perhaps just clumsy propositioning, yeah. perhaps some of the examples yeah, yeah. exactly yeah, that is the thing that i found quite disturbing was that um what a guy can't hit on a girl now is that, is that what it's saying you know that um now, now, clearly that's not everything i mean yes. clearly there are some guys that do take it much further than that but i did find it bizarre that you had the number of people saying me too mm-hmm. you know and even amongst my Facebook friends, there were a couple there that said me too. And I found that really strange. I, I didn't comment or anything like that. And, yeah. you know, they might be listening to this podcast, who knows. But um, yeah. it did strike me as a little off mm. that you would want to join the Me Too Brigade. Yeah. Anyway. Um, got this article, panicking about sexual harassment is bad for women and... Just one bit I've highlighted here is, as the enthusiasm for women to join in with the hashtag MeToo campaign shows, victimhood has become an attractive proposition today. Not only does it provide access to platforms, resources and power, but leads to moral beatification. Contemporary political culture reveres the victim and continually, con- continuously reinforces the authority of those who suffer. The victim is placed on a pedestal, a heroine and blameless. The only demand the victim makes of us is to believe her and in so doing affirm her identity as a victim. Um, to be blameless is to have lacked all ability to control your own destiny. There's a connection here with, with the heirs, with the Uluru thing as well. It's and how many would have accepted the Aboriginal sacredness because of the view of the victims that Aboriginal people are seen to be as opposed to the bakery, which is not a victim. And that Mm. they seem to have more moral weight and more claim to sacredness and everything that, you know, comes from that because of their victim status. And... That's not how you work, you know. That's not how morals should work, dear listener. Just because a victim doesn't mean that they're always right about these things or have extra claims. So, yeah. 
all intertwined. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, this victimhood, identity, religion, they're all wrapped up together. Article here, Archbishop Hobart Archbishop Julian Porteous has called on parents of Catholic school students to support him in preserving the school's Catholic identity. So he is talking about marriage equality and, and you know, bringing in identity arguments now as, as well. Well, they always have. You have to have your, a grip on this identity politics in the sphere, so... Well, you really do, and it's um, it's disturbing the way the church has moved into this identity politics realm because for many years they didn't identify as a separate class or group, did they? Mm. They were just Catholics and that was it, you know. And, and, mm. and now if you can identify as a poor, persecuted Catholic victim, then... Yeah, all the better. ...in your yeah. claim for special privileges, you know, to discriminate against others... In the same way, yeah, in the exactly. same way that a, a poor, victimised Aboriginal community can, you know, gain special rights to tell other people what to do. Mm. World Scott is in trouble. But here's another yeah. example of why we're in trouble. A central report asked people about company tax cuts. Do you approve of the government giving fifty billion dollars in tax cuts to medium and large businesses? No, I don't. <laughs> 30% of Australians said, yes, they do approve. Are you insane? We need taxes to run a civilisation. Yeah, it's really maddening how the lie of the um, trickle-down economics is still with us. Mm. You know, because that really should have been very thoroughly debunked by now. Mm. So we explored in some detail how Australia's tax rates, corporate tax rates, are, when you look at the G20 countries, we couldn't be more in the middle of those countries in terms of being the average, you know, if we tried. Like, it's amazing exactly. how much yeah. we are in the middle of the pack when it comes to tax, taxing corporations. And um, yet, Scott... When you were asked, you know, 30% of people were in favour of um, tax cuts. They also said to people, which of the following statements is closest to your view? Uh, here's statement number one. Cutting the company tax rate will bring Australia's tax base into line with other nations and attract the investment we need to create more jobs. 31% of people thought that. But it's got no idea. Hmm. No idea. Thankfully, 46% of Australians agreed with the, with the proposition cutting the company tax rate will simply deliver businesses $50 billion more in profits, money that should be invested in schools, hospitals and other vital services. Yeah. 23% would don't know. Okay. It really is ridiculous, isn't it? Mm. The, you know, I mean, if you go back to the initial one of those people that disapproved, 50% disapproved, mm. you've got 62% of them voted Labor, 2% voted Liberal National, which I find 32% oh. voted Liberal and National, mm. which I find um, 
quite heartening that you've got a large percentage of the base actually being opposed to those tax cuts. Mm. You know? It's just not enough across the board, I don't reckon. No, no, not across the board. You've still got 30% of the population in agreement with it, Mm. which I think is ridiculous. But um, it's you've really got to... What we've got to do is we've got to get out the message that trickle-down economics doesn't work. Mm, yep. It doesn't work, and it's that's coming from someone that spent the better part of 20 years arguing for it, yep. and it doesn't work. The it, problem is... It really doesn't work. If you just hear it relentlessly through the Murdoch press that it does work, then that's all you get. Like it, yeah, that's true. Yeah, you know. yeah. Yeah. Scott, do you, like, uh, <clears throat> do you like hot bath, Scott? Hot baths? Mm. As opposed to a shower? <laughs> well, <laughs> I have a shower twice a day, yes. but do I have a bath? Do you enjoy hot baths? Well, yeah, probably once a month I'll have a bath, yeah. Yep. When you're in a bath and, um, you know, you can put lovely, uh, you know, um, lotions in the in the bath so you've got nice smells in, in your bath. Yeah. Yep. Have you ever thought to yourself, Scott, gee, I wish somebody would invent... A bath bomb, so that my bath smells like Kentucky Fried Chicken. <laughs> no, and I'm going to regret asking you why. But anyway, because <laughs> in Japan, that's what they've been selling. Is that a, right? A Kentucky Fried a, Chicken bath yeah, bomb. A bath bomb that smells just like KFC. So you can sit in a bathtub and. Feel like you're just in a big vat of fried chicken. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Japanese do like things differently, don't they? They are odd, aren't they? So there you go. A bit of light relief there from the Japanese. Um, Thank you to the Japanese for that. Arigato. <laughs> yes. Uh, speaking of um, hopping all over the place with with uh, the theme of. Our media is so dysfunctional and so distinct between left and right. Um, Wall Street Journal, Scott, yeah, uh, has basically um, ran an an editorial page, ran a column advocating that um, Donald Trump end the um, the Mueller probe and pardon everybody. And it also mobilised an array of um, uh, contributors, um, intellectuals and lawyers in support of, of the argument. So the, basically the Wall Street Journal came out and said that Donald Trump should just stop Mueller's um, investigation and pardon everybody. <laughs> well, that would backfire, wouldn't it? Yeah, but... This is the world we're in, where the Wall Street Journal can can do that. It's, it used to be a prestigious paper at one point, Scott. Yeah, it's... Clearly they've fallen on the side of arguing for Trump's tax cuts and they haven't given any credence to anything else that's happening over there. Do you know, do you know, who, um, do you know who runs or who owns the Wall Street Journal, Scott? Uh, probably Murdoch. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Trump is uh, a blight on the world, but Murdoch 
he created Fox News. Look what he's doing to something like the Wall Street Journal now. He's a, been a, an evil influence on the world, and you know, Trump is just. He a, really has a been, hasn't he? Yeah. Of his, of his handiwork over the last fifty years. So. Yeah. You know, the Wall Street Journal saying that we're, you know, we're in trouble. Uh, let's see what else we can fit in here, Scott. We've, um, oh yeah, actually. Um, so John Menadue blog, um, he mentioned uh, that Jackie Lambie is talking about the lobbying racket in Canberra and how she's proposing legislation to make it less um, easy for lobbyists to operate and we discussed some of the number of lobbyists that are in Canberra and in this blog post from John Menadou, he, he notes that former Trade Minister Andrew Robb, so the former Trade Minister, uh, walked out of the Cabinet in Parliament after negotiating the China-Australia Free Trade Agreement and into an 880000 a year job with a Chinese billionaire who has a 99-year lease on the port of Darwin. Mm-hmm. This just should not be happening. Peter Reith, no, it really shouldn't. Yeah. Peter Reith, former defence minister, took a job with Tenex, a defence logistics firm. Uh, former head of defence and prime minister and cabinet, Ian Watt, was appointed non-executive director of BAE Systems Australia, which is a major supplier to Australian defence forces. And... Sean Costello, former senior advisor to Defence Minister David Johnston, resigned and took the position of CEO with the French company, which subsequently won the $50 billion submarine contract. <laughs> Thanks, Sean Costello, for that fiasco. Yeah. Uh, there's a book called Game of Mates where... Two authors, Paul Fritches and Cameron Murphy, wrote how Australian business people make their money as opposed to the rest of the world. They looked at our Rich 200 list. They found that over 80% of the wealthiest Australians have made their fortunes in property, mining, banking, superannuation and finance generally. All heavily regulated industries in which fortunes can be made by getting favourable property rezonings, planning law exemptions mining concessions, labour law exemptions, money creation powers and mandated markets of many stripes. So most of our wealthy Australians are industries where political decisions are all important. Um, Goes on, two US economists... um, looked at the Forbes rich list to estimate the proportion of billionaires in 22 countries who owed their wealth to political favours. Australia ranked third worst in the world, only slightly better than than Colombia and and India. Um, In Australia, political connections and lobbying count for much more than entrepreneurial or business skills. I didn't realise it was as bad as this, Scott. Uh, well, I always suspected it was bad. I had no idea it was that bad, though. Hmm. And, this, and it makes it more important that Lambie gets up with her yes, lobbying bill, doesn't it? Yes. But this becomes relevant, Scott, when we're looking at our Queensland state election 
the LNP is in front on funding as parties' election war chests are revealed. And what we've got is um, just looking at funding from this article. Catter's Australia Party, what, what, what are they known for? What's their major policy that you can think of? Catter's Australia Party. They're out there backing the man on the land, aren't they, more than anything else? And, and also a relaxation of a particular type of gun. Um, oh, the Adler shotgun, yes. Yeah. Um, guess what? Catter's Australia Party received $156,000, almost all of it from Queensland-based arms importer, NIOA. <laughs> Yeah. The LNP coffers have enjoyed consistent support from a range of donors in the mining, property, hospitality and waste industries. Companies with property or development in their names gave over uh, one million to the party in the last two years. 77 grand a week, they're saying. Yeah. ALP, um, let me just see you the... Unions were the biggest external source of funding for the ALP, naturally enough. And the most prolific corporate political donor to any party has been developer Springfield Land Corporation, the property group run by Malaysian businessman Maha Sinathambi. Significant land holdings at Springfield. He made 19 donations totalling over, or just under 115,000, split 60-40 between the ALP and the LNP. So, so there's an article there about political donations, and ah, it's all very worrying. Scott, just still on the state election, um, One Nation is going to have a big effect, and the top yeah. five policies. And let's hope once these are made public that they don't take that they don't win any seats. Yeah. Well, let's look at the abolishing Cross River Rail. Yeah, like, that's ridiculous. <laughs> I'd like a rail line. Like, it sounds like we need one. Well, Cross River Rail was one of those things that um, it's been a political football between both sides for some time. Hmm. The ALP originally came up with a gold-plated. Uh, design and that sort of stuff. It got kicked back in the uh, the LNP, cut back and that sort of thing. So they're going ahead with it. Mm. She wants to abolish it completely, which I find ridiculous. Mm. Making major changes to the Queensland taxi industry to have rideshare schemes pay the same insurance and charges required of cab drivers. Well, all she's going to do is just kill Uber overnight, isn't she? Well, you know? I'm okay with that, though. I don't have a problem with... with with Uber drivers having to have the same insurance. And I don't know what sort of government levies are levied on taxi drivers, but I reckon Uber drivers should pay the same. Yeah, fair enough, but it's... Um, I've got some... Oh, I've... Yeah, OK. All right. Int- number three, introducing medical cannabis to Queensland. Well, that makes sense, yeah. Okay. Number four, abolishing the Safe Schools Project in Queensland schools. No. So that's, 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 that's done, I'm sure, as part of a Corey Bernardi deal for later on. Of course it is, yeah. Yeah, yeah for sure. 
and uh, no pay rise for MPs during the next term of government. Um, look, I'd like to pay them well, more just so we can get some better quality ones in there. If, if that actually—that's how I—that's that, if, if that how I feel to too. That, but yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it really does make you wonder whether or not it would lead. You know, are we paying peanuts? Are we getting monkeys right now? Who knows? But um, yeah. Uh, I think we mentioned before the Adani project and why was it that both sides of the political divide were in favour of the Adani coal mine, but Palaszczuk, or Palaszczuk, as Tony likes to say, (laughs) had an interesting experience in the last week, dear listener. Her partner works for Pricewaterhouse in a consultancy sort of area dealing with major infrastructure projects. And he apparently did some work to help Adani in terms of its application for the federal government loan. And uh, Anastasia Palaszczuk uh, had to make a decision when it was all sort of came out. Well, hey, how can you... Basically, uh, she basically has a conflict of interest in that she also is making decisions in relation to Adani and um, meanwhile her partner's involved in a capacity with promoting Adani. So she had a choice. She could have said, well, a bit of a conflict of interest here. I'm going to absent myself from any decision-making in relation to the Adani project. Or uh, what she did was she said, kaboom, um, because of that, I'm actually exercising my right of veto and Adani will not be getting any money from the federal government because I, as a state premier, have the ability to um, veto it, which seemed an unusual way of, of, of dealing with a conflict of interest, Scott. It was unusual, wasn't it? I've, I've, I mean, she sort of, she sort of like shoved her partner under the bus, doesn't she? Or she shoved Adani under the bus. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, on a conflict issue. That's true. I wish she just, you know, what she should have done was just said, "I think this Adani coal mine's a really bad idea," and I've decided we're just against it. But yeah, but saying, "Well, my partner has promoted it as part of his business." Therefore, I'm vetoing a federal loan. To me, that doesn't make sense. Um, you know, I've got a new theory, Scott. What, imagine what we could get done. All we need to do is hire her partner to lobby <laughs> in favour of school chaplains and religious yeah. instruction classes and then release the details, and she would go, oh, well, I've got to cancel all those things. Yeah, exactly. my partner's yeah. lobbied in favour of them. At what point do you stop? I mean... Yeah, exactly. And she claimed that she knew nothing about this? Like, what do you talk I about at the dinner table? I find that really ridiculous. I mean, one would have thought that they would have shared something on the pillows or something like that. There had to be some type of pillow talk going on, you know. Just normal dinner party, dinner conversation. Exactly, exactly, yeah. The fact that she didn't know that a partner was involved in promoting the Adani project, even though it's on his LinkedIn profile, is a really yeah. weird thing. It just doesn't add up. Nah, it doesn't. It doesn't add up. I think, 
I think she might have been looking for an excuse to can the Adani project and thought this was going to be the easiest way of doing it. I don't know. Yeah. It really wouldn't surprise me if she wanted it dead because it's going to cost her the election. It's it's going to cost her a lot in the election. Yeah, yeah. You know, Jackie Trad's in trouble in South Brisbane mm. um, for sure, and that's from the Greens. So, you know, she wants to she wants to ba- she wants to she wants to defend her Brisbane flank, and she's got to do that by killing off Adani. Anyway, Adani claimed that there were going to be 10,000 jobs created by their mine and the figure is almost unanimously agreed is closer to 1,500. And, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, uh, but there are other problems with Adani. The case that Adani will cost rather than create jobs has been confirmed in spectacular fashion by none other than Townsville Mayor Jenny Hill, the project's most enthusiastic backer. To secure a promise from Adani that half of the FIFO, fly-in, fly-out workforce, will be based in Townsville, Townsville City Council agreed to pay half the cost of building an airstrip at the mine, which is 600 kilometres outside the council's jurisdiction. Bloody beggar's belief, doesn't it? It's just incredible. It does, yeah. Townsville City Council is building an airstrip 600 kilometres outside of its own jurisdiction. And this is for the owner of this, the owner of this mining company is a billionaire, yeah? The cost of the city will be $18.5 million. Rockhampton, which had been in rec- running to secure the whole base, had no alternative but to match Townsville's offer. And... Yeah, it's... How's Townsville Council going to afford this? They're going to do it by cutting over 100 jobs. <laughs> so in order to so-called get some FIFO workers in Townsville, they're going to build an airport outside of Townsville and they're going to cut jobs in the council, 100 jobs. Oh, what a mess. What a mess. It beggars belief, doesn't it? It's it's It really is ridiculous, the... Um, economics of it all. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever once you put it like that. Yeah, frightening. So, um, uh, Scott, I reckon that is enough for us for an episode. Uh, there's a few more on the list. Well, they've listened to us for a longer, long enough, haven't they? So, so um, dear listener, <laughs> uh, that was episode 121. We will be back. Next Thank you very much for tuning in. We'll talk to you then. Bye. Cheers, bye now. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, First up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and, uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for 
subscribing and paying per episode. And really, the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to, I think, $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, Is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just, it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners, and that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.